Are things recording? There we go. So, um, when you get to looking at confessions, are all with you. Confessions are in response to errors, because I, I wasn't going to put it on, on paper. And then confessions are often modified because of additional errors, because the bad guys, you know, you th- think of it like this. The Christians are the good guys in the world. Christians are the good guys. Non-Christians are the bad guys. Think in those categories. So like here in America, we have we have our arch enemies who are trying to undo us or responding to their attacks, right? And we respond and respond. We change our tactics, change our methods. Well, when we, if we put up a big wall at the border, down there on the southern border, we put up a giant wall, 100 feet tall, 100 feet deep, and 45 feet thick. And, you know, if we put up a giant wall, are they going to stop trying to come across? No, they just try to figure out a different way to get across. So the enemy, the Satan works the same way. And so there's always these errors. So if you ever want to get a book that kind of gives all the errors, all the responses to the errors, this is a great book it's by Walter, Mar- Walter Martin, Kingdom of the Cults. Now, Walter Martin, is he's dead now. He was the original Bible answer man. And you should be able to call into his show. He's from California, of all places. And, uh, but he's... We're not there's, all bad. <laughs> there's a couple editions of this book. This is a newer edition. I think there's a much newer one. And the uh, the new Bible answer man is a guy named Hank Hanegraaff. And uh, Hank Hanegraaff is not quite the scholar that Walter Martin was. But still, it's a, it's a handy resource. And so... Um, yeah, I have I have both Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormonism, kind of the big ones, not all the real obscure ones, but uh, it's all in there. And Martin Martin did a, a lot of great work, so that's a good resource for you to check out sometime. The pastor on the radio this week that was talking about Jehovah's Witness and their terminology is the same as ours. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is to ask them to interpret what that means because it means the meaning is different. That's right. I thought that was a good tool if they come to your door. Yeah, they're not. They're not the same. They're not. They use the same language, the yeah. same terminology. Right. I'm gonna quote. I'm gonna quote Led Zeppelin. <laughs> In Stairway to Heaven, one of the verses says, "Because we all know that words can have two meanings." And that's words often have two meanings. They're saying the same words you say, but not, they don't mean the same thing. So that's exactly right. All right, let's let's make a short prayer, and then we'll look at this section in these three headings. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your, this time to be together. Help us to grow in our knowledge of of truth and to be able to stand in the evil days. We pray in Christ's holy name. We ask it. Amen. So, uh, the first these are three headings: sanctification, the devil or Satan, and creation. All of these statements um, are written to refute the false views on these issues. Sanctification, there are some false views on it. I'm going to read this section to you, then I'll tell you what the false views are, and then uh, we'll look at some some of these scriptures in the proof text. So the section says, we believe that sanctification has a twofold meaning. Let's define the word sanctification first. The word sanctify means to be set apart, set apart for a special service or some kind of thing. The Greek, the Greek word from which we get sanctification is hagios, which is holy, or holy, something set apart. And so that's what sanctification means, something set apart. We believe that sanctification has a twofold meaning. First, that is of, that is of the setting apart of things, days, or persons 
specifically for God, and that the believer at the time of his regeneration is so set apart by the Father. Second, it is the progressive work of the Holy Spirit whereby the believer, through obedience to the Word of God, experiences the power of the indwelling Christ for holiness of life, excuse me, victory over the old nature, which work will only be completed when the believer stands in Christ's presence. So we're saying we believe that there is a setting apart of things, days, and persons. Now, what is the thing that we have set apart as a church? Um, a thing that we've set apart as a church. Think about where we are. This building is set apart for primarily the worship of God. It's for his purpose. So if somebody in the church wants to have uh, well, want to have a dance or a party, would we have it here? That's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> if it was if it was a community square dance, we might we might go with it. But in general, it's it's set it's set apart for a specific purpose. It's it's not regular. It's not a public building. It's set apart for a particular thing. Are there certain days that we have sanctified or set apart? What what days would those be? Basically, for us, it's Sunday. Are there any other days that we might set apart as special days? Christmas, Good Friday, uh, some, some Pentecost. Some of the litur- we don't as Baptists. Baptists don't really follow the liturgical calendar because that's a uh, that's a Puritanism thing. Uh, when the Puritans in the 1700s, when they came into power in Great Britain, they were throwing off Catholicism, and so everything that smelled Catholic was cast off. And so, they're in the in the Reformed tradition. And Baptists are, are technically a part of that Reformed tradition. There is always this overcorrection against anything Catholic. And so uh, uh, we don't really follow the liturgical calendar. And if that's good or bad, I, I, don't, I don't know. Probably, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's probably, anyway, it doesn't, it, I don't think it really matters. Persons. Persons. We, do, we say, do we set apart persons specifically for God? When we're when we're doing ordinations, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest with you, baptisms are are similar to that because you're you're sanctifying yourself to God. And I, when I'm talking about baptism to people, I say you're putting on the team jersey. You say I play for Christ and that kind of thing. With ordination, I read a fascinating thing in uh, what was I reading? Um, it was Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of his books on. Um, no, it wasn't Jonathan Edwards. I can't remember who it was. I'm, that's what I was reading about or about ordination. It was a, an, an approach to ordination I, I hadn't thought of, but it was very, very. I'm not going to talk about that because I'm not sure if I agree with it. So the belief, and, and so we have days and things, persons we set apart specifically for God, and then the believer, all believers in general, at the time of their regeneration, are set apart by God. Now, how does that take place when you put your faith in him? What what t- what takes place? You put your faith in him, you get the Holy Spirit, and you become part of what? Uh, the, the, there's, there's, there's three things you become part of when you when you believe. Well land, the landmarkism is about to leap out. Hold on. <laughs> so when you become a believer. You become part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, and the 
church of God or the body of Christ. So those those things happen. Well, the the church this the church is your connection to Christ. The family is your connection connection to God. He's your father. So in the church, this is like your connection to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We're the for the purchased people. That's the distinction. And then with the church, you also have another another distinction under the church is you have the visible church. The New Testament tells us that a visible church is an assembly of what kind of believers? Baptized. Baptized what? Believers, AKA, brace yourself, adults. The baptism of children is kind of a, it's kind of an innovation, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it's become a problem through the baptism of children because in Baptist churches, the age at which they baptize has gotten lower and lower and lower and lower and lower, all the way down to where a three-year-old kid who can answer the question, "Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior?" Yes. You want to follow the believers' baptism? Yes. Now, now. Um, I think baptizing a three-year-old kid is infant baptism. <laughs> Myself, you have to you have to get it. You have to move that age up because baptism in most Baptist churches. I'm sorry, getting the ecclesiology, but baptism makes you a member of that local church. Normally, you're received. Not all churches do it this way. I don't think churches should receive by baptism. I think baptism is a gospel ordinance. It should be in in its it's a, a prerequisite to church membership. It doesn't make you a member of the church. The I think the real door of church membership is mutual consent. So John Gill says, is that if I as a baptized believer apply to a church, so I want to be a member of this church, if that church will receive me as a member, I'm mutually consenting to join. They're mutually consenting to receive me. That's the door to the church, to the congregational vote, to the, to the visible church. So, when you become a believer, you're set apart into these three, family of God, kingdom of God, the body of Christ. This is, this is the universal body. The visible church is only entered after you've been baptized through mutual consent. True New Testament churches do it that way. Churches that don't do it that way are not New Testament churches. Because you cannot substantiate their positions from Scripture. That's why early on I talk about being a Baptist. It's an ecclesiology. When you study the New Testament, if you look for baptism of babies in the New Testament, you don't find it. Look for hierarchical structures. Like in the Lutheran Church, Episcopal structures, you don't see any of those things in Scripture. The New Testament Church is very simple, very organic. So, and this has been an ongoing debate within the Baptist group. The landmark controversy, the landmark, the landmark controversy began because Southern Baptists were saying um, they were saying the other 
Presbyterians, basically. They were saying they were recognizing their ordination and letting them preach in their churches. And this caused a conflict because Baptists don't believe that Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, Methodist churches are New Testament churches because they do not fit the New Testament pattern because they have unbaptized people in their membership. And then you get, so the question is, um, how do you know they're unbaptized? If you baptize a baby, is that, is that biblical baptism? If baptizing an infant is biblical baptism, then their church is just like we are. But if it's not biblical, then, then it's a church, it's a, it's a congregation of unbaptized people. And the Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, Lutheran Church, everybody says you have to be baptized to be a part of a church. Baptists just say, look, baptizing a baby is not baptism. It's, it's, it's disobedience. Now, John Piper famously, he's, I heard him say this in a, uh, he was asked by Kevin DeYoung, Presbyterian. Kevin said, they're talking about Lordship salvation, right? And Kevin says, uh, talks about, do you think that Christians who live in ongoing sin are going to go to heaven? And Piper says, well, I think that most of you right here are disobeying the Lord's command to believe and be baptized. So I think you're going to heaven <laughs> because it's it's a big it's a it's a big deal. What's happened in the Christendom is the de the de emphasis of of the ordinances of baptism is really, and kind of in the last uh, I don't know the last thirty years, um, there's a ecclesiologist taking a real punch in the gut, which is why Mark Dever wrote his book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and, he, and this is one of the things he strikes right at is what the visible church looks like. And so these are, so you're set apart. You're sanctified. You're set apart by these things. And the visible church is something. And we'll get to that section. It's about Article 12 or 13, I think. Hopefully it's number 13. So that means I have a lot of fun with numbers. So, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. When you talk about being a member of the church, the universal church, that makes me a little uncomfortable when we attach baptism to that because that makes baptism self-evident. We're not. But I'm not. I'm talking about the visible church. Correct. And that's not my judgment. That's a scriptural judgment. So there's a visible church and there's an invisible church. Now, B.H. Carroll talked about the, the big church. He called it the glory church. Because the Carol, Carol's view was that the visible church is only can only ever be baptized believers, the visible church. But he knows there is a bigger church out there. He says that's in the future. That's the glory church where everybody's assembled in one place in glory. And when everybody passes through the veil into eternity, everybody's right with God over there. There are no theological errors. Everybody has the right, the right mindset, the mind of Christ. That the, the importance of baptism is only something that matters here. Once you pass into the eternal realms, it's one assembly in one place with one head. That's Jesus over there. 
So it's in prospect. But all but what we deal with down here are visible churches, right? And these visible churches, if the if the New Testament, but you you are, you are catching something interesting though, because this was a landmark this was a landmark controversy. I'm uncomfortable with landmark churches. Because here is what here's what J.R. Graves said. J.R. Graves was the leading landmarker, right? There's Southern Baptist Southern Southern Baptist before Graves and after Graves. J.R. Graves, A.C. Dayton, and their ilk, they taught something that even landmark Baptists today don't teach. They taught that the kingdom of God is all the visible churches, Baptist churches, in the aggregate or collectively, that that's the kingdom of God and that each church is its own small kingdom, right? Now, that sounds like the church of Christ to me. That sounds like baptism regeneration, that baptism is, is an essential salvation. And that was what makes the, the schism in the Southern Baptist Convention over landmarkism because those guys were saying, okay, and that means no universal church. Graves, no universal church. Dayton, no universal church. That's all heresy. Up until them, all, all the Baptist people, Baptist people, they believe in the universal church. That's the true church. Because the visible church is imperfect, right? We don't know who is saved and who's not. So it's always imperfect. But, but Graves is saying the visible church, they're baptized. That's, a tr that's the true church. Church, the, the, the bride of Christ, all those are different things? Yes. No. No. In, in the landmark tradition, when a person gets saved, they're part of the family of God and the kingdom of God. But they're not part of the church of God until they're baptized. Isn't part of the church, the church of God. So, so once they're in the landmark tradition, when a person is saved, born again, they're part of the family of God, and they're part of the kingdom of God, but they're not part of the church of God until they get baptized. And the church of God is the visible church. The church is a visible church. That's right. So, and, and here's the term they use: it's local only. So like that's that's something we distinguish. We say our our local church, which means us right here, versus the universal church. So the local church only. Now, this local church only. The local, the visible church, is the bride of Christ, because then every time church is mentioned in Scripture, except for Matthew 16, where it talks about an institutional sense, the church of God, and every time the word ecclesia appears. They always interpret it in a local sense. It's 120 times it's in the New Testament. 119 of them. It's all talking about a local congregation. You're back to us now or landmark? What landmark is? I'm talking about what landmark people say. So they say it's this. So they, they say it's the local church only. That's all there is. There is no mystical body. So, so then you have the question, which naturally comes up. Uh, some not all landmark not all landmark people are Baptist writers. But a lot of them are. So the bride of Christ is the visible Baptist church. And not just any Baptist church. It has to be a special kind of Baptist church. 
So they say that in eternity, when we all get to heaven, there's Jesus who is the head of the church, the husband of the bride. Where does the husband live with his bride? They live in one place, right? So all the baptized believers are in glory, are in Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Everybody else is is in the new in the new heaven and new earth outside of the city, and they bring their glory into the city periodically. So they have in heaven a picking order in heaven. There is a Jesus and His bride, and everybody else outside the church, and they have they have to work. They're trying to because they're trying to work out all those objections. They're working them out, and B. H. Carroll is a glory church guy. So he doesn't, even, he doesn't even agree with all the regular landmarkers. He says, once we get to heaven, we're all one. We're all equal. But it's in prospect. So there's, there's a... Isn't, the, isn't, isn't theology, isn't theology a trip? Yeah. It's a trip. Because cause then we get into the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is very like landmarkism. The Catholic Church is almost exactly like landmarkism because the Catholic Church says that they are the what? They're the one true church. Is there salvation outside of that one true church? Francis says yes, but, <laughs> but their confessions say no. So you, you, there's a lot. There's a lot of there's a there's a lot of stuff going on there. Well, my question is. Our statement of faith. We talk about baptized believers. Mm -hmm. Is that because we're a Baptist church? Just or is it... no. It's because we believe the New Testament. Because when you when you take up the New Testament and you grind through Acts, what do you see? You see people believing, being baptized, and organized into churches. Very simply very organically, just like Baptist churches are. Now, Baptist churches, they can get a little, um, they, they can over, they can over, what does it mean? It's go from simple to complex. What is it? They can complicate things. And they and they tend to, because we're people, that's what we do. Remember Eve, when Satan came to Eve and he said, uh, what did God say about this fruit? What did you say? Don't eat it and what? Who said she couldn't touch it? She did. Nobody said that. Man always builds the fence higher than they need to. They're always stricter than God. And <laughs> but Acts is, the book of Acts is everything in the book of Acts does not apply to us because it's the book of Sarah. There's a lot of weird things that happen in Acts that we don't think will happen today. That's true. But we're not talking about all those transitional things. We're talking about the, the, the consistent, concurrent, the, the stable things. We're talking about faith, people coming to faith. What happens after they come to faith? They get baptized, Acts 2. And then they're, they're added to a local church. Now, some of, the, some of these arguments are, are good because you have to think about... Um, so I got I got in trouble for teaching this in my church in Oklahoma was because I 
I don't, I don't want to go any further. I got to stop because I'm not going to get, I'm not going to finish this. But I do want to talk about these things because I love it. I love all this ecclesiological stuff. It's so, it's fascinating to me. And what's really fascinating to me is to run into people to whom it's foreign. <laughs> because it, there is a rich, succulent tradition of this, of this, of this view. And it, it's, it's very, it's a lot broader a lot deeper than people than people understand. And if you come from Christian Reformed or Methodist or Catholic or Lutheran backgrounds, you know they're they're, they're they see themselves all being kind of kind of one, because you have the Catholic Church, and from the Catholic Church comes the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, or not Methodist Church. What's the church that came before the Methodist? Episcopal Church. All those are splinters off the Catholic Church. And my position is that. The new the, the New Testament church is not a splinter off of the Catholic Church. It's all it's always been there in the fringe, not as well established, but it's always been out there, lurking around. Because I don't think if Jesus says my church will never cease to be, Matthew sixteen, you are Peter. Now on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. If the true New Testament church ever disappeared from the earth. Than, than, than what Jesus said is not true, so it had it had to be there. Can't, you don't always you can't always find find them. They're hard to see. When you look back through church history, the Anabaptists get a, get a lot of. I mean, the Anabaptists believe what we believe all the way back to eleven twenty. That's pre Reformation. It's way back there, and you can you can find it going even further and further back. So uh, it's really it's really. Um, Anything else you want to know, Denise? Because when, when we get to the church part, all this, because... I've always felt an affinity for my Christian Reformed brothers. Sure. <laughs> it's, the, it's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're all reading a Bible that wasn't... None of these Bibles were produced by Baptists. Baptists never, never translated anything. That's not true. <laughs> they translated some things. But there, there, there is a, an ecumenism... That's true, that we have to work with other people. I mean, I'm going down. I'm going to the Cama meeting and talking to those guys down there. You know, sometimes I'm listening to them and I think, why in the name of God am I listening to these people? <laughs> because some things they say, I just I'm like, I just I don't agree with anything you're saying right now. But you know, they're Christians. I was talking to one of the guys there this week, and he told me that it blew me away because he told me he came to faith in a Baptist church in Florida, and then became you know was baptized and went off to school and joined the military and then became a Wesleyan. See, now you're talking about <laughs> But it was a, he said, you'll love this because I got saved in a Baptist church. And I was like, well, that's great. You know, so, but other things he and I disagree with, you know, but I like him, you know. Um, well let's well let's let's think about this in a different way if you look at acts 17 verse 11 acts 17 11 and look what the scripture says here This is, I'll read verse 10. 
As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So we, we have to examine what people say and measure it by scripture to be sure that it's true. And if it doesn't square with scripture, it's not true. We have to register set aside as false. If there were one passage in the New Testament that said, and they baptized the child, it wouldn't even have to be the word for infant. If it just said they baptized the child, I would swap with a Presbyterian so fast it'd make your head spin. I mean, I'd be right over there. But there's not one place where it says they did that. W.A. Uh, Warfield, the leading Princeton Presbyterian scholar, he says the argument for infant baptism is an argument from silence. From silence. So, so these these are these these are these are big deals. Well, that is. Yeah, that that's the silence. It's implied. Right. So in a in a in a Roman household, it's not just the children. It's the slaves. It's all all the wives. It's every person who is part of that household. So that and usually Presbyterians or Pedo Baptists, they leave a right to that. The whole household is baptized. Well, so let's apply it to the modern Christian era. Let's say you're Jim Mills, you become a Presbyterian, and you have and slaves, kind of the modern view of slaves is people who work for you, right? So all, all the people who work for your business, you're going to baptize all those people. But you're going to apply it consistently. So that's the, and in Warfield, all the Presbyterians admit it. Uh, one of my friends is a Presbyterian. He says that uh, because the early Christians were, the early Christians were Jews, that they would have been offended. They would have been offended to learn that what had been offered to children down through the centuries through circumcision was now no longer offered to their children. But that's exactly what Peter says in Acts 2. He says about being baptized, repent and be baptized for remission of sins. This promise is to you and to your children. Presbyterians always stop right there. It's to you and to your children. But the next phrase says, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So only those who are called are to be baptized. See? So if, if, if one place, and sometimes the argument will be in Luke 19 where they, they brought the infants to Jesus and he blessed them. They said, so there's infant baptism. Okay. Where's the word baptized? It's not, is, blessing a, is baptism a blessing? Yes. But is that what Jesus is doing? If it's that important, is it there? So we have to measure things, measure things by scripture. That's why we say, is it a Baptist perspective? It is a Baptist perspective, but it's rooted in the New Testament. It's rooted in the New Testament. If the Bible says it, I'm cool with it. If it doesn't say it, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give people grace. And I love, and I have good friends here at Presbyterian. I've been Presbyterian preach for me in Oklahoma. Uh, that caused me some fumble, some flap too. <laughs> but. Anyway, 
Let's skip to ecclesiology. I, anyway. Um, I'm going to say this final thing about, about it. No matter who they are, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, they all believe that their visible church is composed of baptized believers. And in the, remember in pedo Baptist churches, the families believe on behalf of the child. They're exercising their faith on behalf of it. So even they, they have to have a confession of faith before they baptize. That's not made by the child, it's made by the parents. So it's, it's kind of, we, we place um, New Testament Bible-believing Baptists, <laughs> we, we put baptism after the new birth, not the spiritual birth. That's kind of the, the different place. So, sanctification. Sanctification, we sanctify people for God. The believers are set apart by God the Father at the time of regeneration. The second is, it's a progressive work of the Holy Spirit, whereby the believer is made like Jesus. He's being transformed. And let's turn to, uh, I'll show you guys something interesting first. Look at 1 Corinthians one thirty. I noticed this, the NIV in 1 Corinthians one thirty. it said, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Does anyone have a different word than holiness? Sanctification. Sanctification. So the, the, the NASB, the ESV, the KJV, New King James, they all say sanctification versus holiness. And so these proof texts are usually key to key words. So if you see that, you realize holiness is the same as sanctification. It's the same Greek word. Holiness is just another synonym for it. It means to be sanct to be sanctified means to be holy, to be set apart. You see the same thing in Hebrews 10.10. 10. It says holy in the NIV. It says sanctified in the others. So this is where set apart for these things. And then you have Colossians one twenty-eight through twenty-nine. Don't be knocking on the NIV over there, Denise. Nearly inspired. I heard that. We used to say the non-inspired. <laughs> we didn't even give it nearly. Oh, Col Colossians one twenty-eight. I, I do. I just say it was the same thing. But Colossians one twenty-eight is talking about the progressive part of it. He is the one we proclaim, Paul says, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present you, that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all energy, so so powerfully Christ works in me. Is that we're working to get people to be sanctified? And this is a part of the, the ministry of a Christian pastor and Christians in general, just to keep on exhorting people to submit to what God has said in his word to keep on submitting to the Holy Spirit. And this is and this never stops. It never stops. Have you ever got have you ever licked a sin? Licked a sin. <laughs> never stops until we get to glory. Until we get to glory. It's progressive. Because once you once you beat a sin, you know, oftentimes you can beat beat something, but then something else takes its place. Or you beat it down for a while and it comes back later. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's persistent. So this is what we're, we're working with these things. John 17, 17, 
this is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. We're submitting to his word. Uh, it probably does. I didn't check. It does say sanctify them. I checked it. It, it wasn't universal, Denise. I thought it would be, but they do switch back and forth. Because in Thessalonians 5.23, they use the word sanctified there too. Versus holy. Just in those two places. I'll read 1 Thessalonians 5.23 to you. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is this is an important emphasis that Paul makes. Is it's it's not you by the mastery of yourself that makes you sanctified. We submit to the Holy Spirit. We submit to God's word. And he gives us the power the ability to overcome these things. But that's an act of faith. Faith in obeying him. So if God says, thou shalt not lie, well, how often have you been faced with what feels like the necessity of telling a lie? You remember those Geico commercials when Abraham Lincoln standing there and his wife, she, she, wife walks out and she's got a dress all makes her look this wide. And she says, do I look fat? And he goes, <laughs> you know, sometimes we're, but we have to go by faith. This was one of the kids this week. We we're talking about a situation, and I said, "Now you cannot lie." There's something that's going on in school about something. I said, "You cannot lie. If you if you lie, you're going to be in big trouble. It's going to it'll get you out of the jam. You know, all your friends will be cool with you, but if you lie, you're you can't do it." You know, so what do they have to learn? Okay, am I gonna, am I gonna, am I gonna, because the Bible says that's false. This don't, forbids it. So you have to trust God's word. And as we read the, read the scriptures, we submit to it. We obey it. And the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to do it. We don't know if we can handle it, if we can bear it up. He helps us. It's through submission to his word, following his word. Remember, my friends, the only way you can know a hundred percent sure that the Holy Spirit has said it is if it is in Scripture. That's the only way you can know it. Everything else is supposition, is a guess. My friend Mike Keybone, he's, he's not a close friend, but he's a friend in Lawton, Oklahoma, pastors, pastors First Baptist Church. He said he had a guy in his church who came to him and said, uh, he said he was so happy just giving giving glory to God. He said, why? He said, because. He said, my wife, my marriage was bad, right? Bad marriage. My wife was a nut. The Lord led me to this wonderful, sweet, gentle, tender creature. And we committed adultery. My wife found out. He said, that was what I needed. So I needed to break the marriage. We got divorced. I remarried this girl. And man, my life is so much better. She's, you know, she's better all the way around. He's like, you know, that was, God led me into this. God must have led me into this good thing because every good and perfect gift cometh from where? And Mike told him, he said, that was not the Holy Spirit <laughs> that did that because God doesn't lead you to go against it. But the guy was just like, but, but. See, so you have to know where to go by what Scripture says. If you find yourself in that situation, obey Scripture, you know. I've been telling that story around, and 
Mike tells it from the pulpit of his own church, you know? And so he doesn't tell the guy's name, but I mean, probably everybody knows. But Proverbs 6.33 says, Whoso committeth adultery giveth himself a wound and a blot that cannot be wiped away. It's a big deal. The devil. So sanctification, let me tell you the errors of sanctification. This statement says it's, sanctification is progressive and a result of salvation, not a contributing part of salvation, because there are people who say that sanctification uh, is a part of, is, contributes to being saved. We say sanctification is a sign that you are saved. How do you know if a person is saved? They want to follow Christ. When the, when, the, when the Holy Spirit moves in, he rearranges the furniture how he wants it, and it's not, it's not, it's not perfection overnight. When my mom and dad got saved, my dad was a, a country, you know, Merle Haggard, redneck country boy. And so when he got, and, and my mom, she was a hippie, basically. Her boyfriend was a drug dealer. And she did all the things that the hippies did. But when my, when my dad got saved at 16, he quit smoking and drinking and rebelling against his parents the whole nine yards all in one night. I mean, just like, boom. Walked into church, scary Terry came out. Nice Terry, <laughs> right? My my mom, when she became a Christian, much slower, peeling off the layers year after year of peeling off the layers. Both of them began sanctification, but they both went at different rates. Who controlled that? Must have been the Holy Spirit. Must have been how God decided to work. Maybe it's because of their personalities. I do not know, but there's ongoing progress. And if you're here, and you don't, and you look at your life and say, "I don't, I ain't making much progress." You probably have made more progress than you think, because the Holy Spirit is working on you. The fact that you want to make progress, <laughs> it means the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Yeah, the fact that you're here. That's one of this garbage. So, the errors are that sanctification that sanctification contributes to salvation, instead of being a sign of salvation. Now, some people don't think that Baptists believe in sanctification because Baptists basically believe once saved, always saved, live like the devil and go to heaven. That's that's a that's in one sense, that's true because you're saved by Christ. But but Baptists kind of in the modern era have forgot their old position on perseverance is that perseverance of the saints is that once a person is born again. They have a persevering attachment to Christ. The London Confession says that though true believers may fall into grievous errors, they will not stay there. They will recover themselves out of these errors. So there is a rich tradition of this perseverance of sanctification in the Baptist world, but because, you know, Baptist kind of uh, in the modern era, because Jesus is coming back, we have to get everybody saved through the sinner's prayer and through, you know, Big, big scale evangelism. Try to get a lot of professions. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to get a lot of people saved. I mean, I want to get people saved. You know, I know you guys do too. But sometimes there's a, uh, you can make a machine out of it. And you're generating decisions. And not, and not true, not true professions. So we do believe in sanctification. Uh, another error is perfectionism. Perfectionism is an error that says that you can, becomes sinlessly perfect now. And it happens two ways. 
either eventually you'll progress to the point where you don't sin anymore and you don't have the desire to sin anymore. They call it the eradication of the sin nature. And then um, the Nazarene, they do, they do believe that. Um, very, I've never met a Nazarene who says that they, that they have been entirely sanctified. Uh, Methodists believe it in, a, in, in some on some levels. It, it varies. Um, the Wesleyan Arminians, they believe, and I don't think, and the Wesleyan Church here in town does not believe this, but um, Wesleyan Arminians believe in a, it's called the second work of grace. Whereas in, in the Pentecostal movement, you have the, the second blessing, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, they have this thing that's called when the Holy Spirit falls on you, it's the eradication of your sin nature. That you don't even want to sin anymore. You have no desire for sin. It's a very, it's a very, I actually met a guy. He was, his name is Joel Light. He was a Western Armenian evangelist. And he said, I don't, he said, Terry, I don't sin anymore. And I don't want to sin either. And I said, never? No. I threw it out. First John 1, 7. He that saith he has no sin is a liar. <laughs> he said, but I have no sin. I said, I don't understand how you can say that. And it was a, but he just kept on saying, I don't sin. That, must have been. Yeah, at the time, that was probably, that was before Lefty was born. So it was a long time ago I talked to him. <laughs> My, uh, I met, I met a Pentecostal in Hot Springs one time who believed that you would not go to heaven until you had you could live without sin. And he said, how many lifetimes do you think that takes? I was like, I don't know. He said, as many as it takes. Because that particular church, they taught reincarnation. And their proof text for it was, Jesus said that John the Baptist was what person who preexisted? Elijah. There you go. You're like, and first I was, I think I was about 22 years old and heard that. I thought, mind blown. There's all kinds of kooky ideas out there. All kinds of kooky ideas. Anyway, perfectionism. Our statement says we believe in sanctification, but it's not connected to being saved. It's, it's a result of being saved. It doesn't cause our salvation. The middle section, section five, the devil or Satan. This basically is just saying, in so many words, that we believe in a real personal devil. That there is a real personal devil. Not just a, not just a general darkness out there or opposition to truth, but there is an actual person who is working against the kingdom of God. Here's a statement. We believe Satan was once holy, enjoyed heavenly honors, but through pride and ambition to be as the Almighty fell and drew after him a host of angels. But he is now the malignant prince of the power of the air, the, ungod, the unholy god of this world. We hold him to be man's great tempter, the enemy of Christ, of God and his Christ, the accuser of the saints, the author of all false religions, the chief power back of the present apostasy, the lord of the Antichrist, and the author of all powers of darkness, destined, however, to found defeat at the hands of God's Son, and to the judgment of the eternal justice in hell, and a place prepared for him and for his angels. I'll just point out a few statements here. Uh, in this, first of all, Isaiah fourteen twelve through fifteen. If you have author, I'll, this is as 
in the authorized version. Do you have authorized version, Miss Nader? Can you look at uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15? And so you guys turn to Isaiah 14 in yours, in your two, in yours two. <laughs> in the unauthorized versions. Isaiah 14, 12. And so give us a reading there, that first verse, Miss Nate, if you don't mind. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, who didst weaken the nations? So this is a... This is the only place in Scripture where the name Lucifer appears. If you don't have a, a King James Version, you didn't see Lucifer, did you? What would you, you see? Oh, day star, or you saw morning star. Now, the reason, and then as 55% of people read the Bible every day are still reading the King James Version. That's, that's the latest text, 55%. Uh, the rest of the people are reading mostly, the, the majority of the rest are all reading the NIV. Now, more than likely that 55% is still the older generation. Yeah. Only the older generation. Only the older generation. And one thing about that, huh? Anybody? If you're 10 years older than me. <laughs> There's a couple things about that that I think are are kind of um, kind of sad. Is that um, older folks are more concerned or better at reading the Bible than younger folks? Older folks are are reading the Bible; younger folks are not. And I'm I'm a parent, and uh, we've read the Bible with our kids. Our kids have read the Bible on their own. But they they are not everyday Bible readers. I've si I signed up all the kids one time to get their daily readings in their email. <laughs> and one of them said, "Why are you cluttering up my inbox?" <laughs> and I, I try to say it's important. It's important that the, that they, that they that they read that they read the Bible. And so uh, now I went all the way through my childhood not reading the Bible. I went to Bible college. I read the Bible only for classes. But once I was 21, I was reading a book by Jerry Vines. It was a commentary on First John. And he said, miss, the bre miss your Bible, but don't miss your breakfast. And I was, when I was 21 years old. I'd been ordained already. I passed the ordination examination, graduated from college. Been, I'd been a pastor, assistant pastor at two churches. And I didn't read the Bible every day. I read it for my work. I had a sermon to give. I read it for those things. When Jerry Vines said that, I thought, I felt like it was the first time anybody had ever told me that in my whole life. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, and I've been reading the Bible every day since. So that's 20-odd 20, 20 years. Not the same amount every day, because the days can be busy, but I've read the Scriptures every day. Now, that's what it took for me to read the Scriptures every day. And I hope and pray that for my kids and every other person that's a Christian, that something will happen in their life that will say, hey, i got to read the book every day. It's important. So, um, but what's but Lucifer is the name of Satan in the King James Version. The reason it says Lucifer is because in the Latin Vulgate, the word for sun of the morning or day star is Luciferon. And they just transliterated they transliterated the word to Lucifer. Just like they did with baptize, instead of saying immerse, they put baptize, it should be translated immerse, 
the word the word church ecclesia should be translated assembly or congregation they just transliterated the word brought it over so you'll hear newer newer younger pastors the newer generations you'll hear the name lucifer less and less and less and less as time goes on because the most popular translation of scripture don't use that they use morning star or day star people who are critics of newer bibles will say that this is a corruption because when you say morning star or day star it sounds like it's talking about jesus because there's only one place in revelation where it talks about jesus being uh, you know, the, mor the morning star now i don't think that's a big deal myself because i think satan being called the morning star or day star is consistent with satan he wants to replace jesus he wants to be the object remember the antichrist is going to come fueled and powered by satan and he's going to say i'm i'm the one and so there you go so that's a, that's a, that's a, that's interesting aside um in the reading there towards the bottom it's letter g it says that he's the author of all false religions the author of all false religions listen to this reading from second corinthians 11. second corinthians 11 13 through 15. The heading of this chapter is Paul and the False Apostles. So verse 13 says this, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then. 13, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm fixing to start 15. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So what does what does satanic religion look like? Just like us. Yep, it looks... It looks light and fluffy. If you go, if, if on a Sunday morning, the Jehovah's Witnesses are not meeting right now because they're scared of COVID, because they're held, because they're afraid of dying. Are they back to doing it now? Are they mailing it or putting it on your door? Letters, yeah. They're not, they're not, yeah, because they're not, they're still not going door to door yet. Because they're... Thunder. Yep. Pastor, uh, Pastor Keener in Oklahoma, he wrote a track. It was called, it's track T11 in the catalog. It was called uh, Satan Salesman. You know, it was about Jehovah's Witnesses, and he just said they're Satan Salesman. He just says, close the door, I'm not talk to him. When Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I've always talked to them and kept them there a long time because they only go out for two hours. <laughs> and I figure, and I figure if they stay talking to me, then they're not going to talk to anybody else. And uh, and one time I saw Joe. I'm such a I'm such a mean person. This guy, they were talking to me. It was hot, Oklahoma. I'm out on the front porch. It's Saturday morning. You know, I'm wearing gym shorts and a t-shirt, and they're all dressed up. We're talking. And the guy's like, you know, well, it's obvious that, you know, we're not going to change your mind, Terry. It's just the way it's going to go. And I said, you're going to go? 
Don't you care about my soul? I'm going somewhere, aren't I? I said, don't you? The Bible says that Paul reasoned day and night with people. You're going to run off and leave me here? I did. Guess what they did? They stayed. They did not come back anymore. Because they, they do keep they do keep careful records of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe so. They they uh, and I, and I know some Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff. Pat has talked to them about the kind of stuff they do because they're very organized. But uh, if you went to Jehovah's Witness Church, if you pull up in their parking lot and watch them go in, you're going to see men in suits, ladies in dresses. They're very they're very reverential. They're very serious. You're going to walk in there. You're going to hear a lot. You're gonna, they give attention to the sermon. They sing well. Nice music. You're gonna. It looks, it looks good, but the poison is what they teach. They teach air. So Satanism. We think of Satanism. Satanism in America as being, you know, some guy's got a, you know, picture of a crazy looking goat or something with the upside down peace signs. My dad would say that was the anti. He always said it was the Antichrist. The upside down peace, the peace sign. And, but that's not how it looks. It looks very, very good, but it's satanic. He transforms his people into ministers of light. His false apostles. Now there are false apostles that teach errors, serious errors, damnable doctrines, damnable heresies. So he's the author of all false religions. He's the chief power back of the present apostasy. Now this this term, the present apostasy, um, this this confession is probably going to date from the '60s or '70s, and uh, culturally it felt like a great time of falling away. I didn't live through that time. I was born in 1978. But you see this, this change in cultures from the 1940s and 50s, this, the sexual revolution of the 70s and rock and roll, you know, and Valerie's grandparents, they heard Elvis, they were listening to Elvis Presley live in uh, Batesville, Arkansas, and they walked out because it was so profane. What if they could see what's out there today? <laughs> I mean, it's just, that was they said that was a, a bad time. So, but the devil he's he's going to wind up in the last days. He's going to wind up in the place of, of judgment. He's going to be get he's going to get justice uh, in hell. Uh, he's the back of all these all these. He is working. And sometimes in um, sometimes we don't forget Satan. Satan has a lot of power. He has a lot of power. He's but he's not but he's not power uncontrolled, right? He is work. He is doing things for a reason. And um, the amillennials, they say that Satan is already bound. He's already in the bottomless pit. He's already. Yeah. This is the this is the millennium. Ain't it great? <laughs> so, but they. But then the question is, how can how can Satan be doing all these things if he's chained? And they say it's a very long chain. <laughs> doing doing. Doing a, doing a lot of, but you know, in one sense, this is true. Satan is bound, bound by God. And we, what's the, what's the, what's the exact? Yeah, Jim just said it. Joe, Satan's out there. He's doing his stuff. We can only do what God lets him do. I think John MacArthur in his study Bible, I think he lists he lists twelve things Satan does for God right now. It's an interesting list. I, I gave away my MacArthur Study Bible, but I think I think it's in there. So Satan is doing some things, but he's 
he can't do anything he wants to do. Now, Revelation 12 is an interesting passage to look at. And um, I only have about 15 minutes left. Revelation 12. This is a much better reading from the. Uh, Oh, it's okay. It's okay here. Twelve ten. We'll read to we'll read to twelve. We'll go from ten to twelve. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, "Now have some pe some people believe we're in Revelation twelve right now, because in Revelation twelve because it look kind of you can kind of see the reason they think it because you have Jesus appearing, Israel brings forth the son, Satan tries to devour the baby, the destruction of all the the infants, all the crying. So it's kind of a Depends on how you part, how you chop up Revelation. So we have this casting down. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, "Now have come the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah." But the accuser of our brethren, our brothers, I'm going KJV on you. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accused them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They trapped over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because the devil's not up there anymore. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. You know, so if Satan does have any sense of, you know, his, of the limitation of time, when you're running out of time to do something, what do you become? Frantic. Working wildly. And so as we get closer and closer to the final days, Satan, he's going he's gonna to work wilder, and quicker, with less mercy, you know, like a lion. And then number six, creation. These statements are all about the rise um, of evolution, the rise of evolution. Very, yeah, this is very smart. And this is very narrow. If you, I'll just give you a comparison reading of about 300 years earlier. This is the London Confession from 1689. It says this about creation. This is, this is paragraph one of three, but it just talks about the different days. This is paragraph one. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. And that's basically the sense of what it says. And then it just tells what happens on the individual days, just in brief. But in this confession, it's a lot more, a lot more strict than that. We believe in the just account of creation that is to be accepted literally. And not what? Allegorically, not figuratively. The man was created directly in God's image after his own likeness. The man's creation was not a matter of evolution. Why didn't the London Confession 1689 talk about evolution? It wasn't around. Now the idea was there. It was in, it was in philosophy already. It gets, starts being taught in the 1770s in Germany. It's already out there. But it, was, it wasn't a big issue. Nobody, that, was a very, that was a minority view. Not a matter of evolution or evolutionary change of species or development through interminable 
periods of time from lower to higher forms. All animal and vegetable life was made directly. And God's established laws that they should bring forth only after their kind. It's very narrow response to evolution. And um, it's very, very tight. It's and beyond. And you guys want to know something? If you have this, if you have the whole thing printed out, the whole all the lectures for this in the supplemental section, you'll see that even since this was done, it's on page page eighteen. They even tighten it up even more. Tighten it up even more. They keep on tightening it up. Now, there are various views. And the reason why you see this, this tightening up is the various views have been taught to make room for theistic evolution, different kinds of evolution. This article says we don't teach that. We don't believe that. Now, you have a, is that a, is that a Schofield? Mm-hmm. Can I borrow it? (laughs) This is a a holy moment. (laughs) I got saved. My dad handed me uh, a a Schofield. So, in Miss Nada's Schofield Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And there's a there's a footnote right in between verse one and verse two. It says the earth was waste and empty. And the nineteen seventeen school field has a bigger note that says takes you to Jeremiah four twenty three. Because Schofield believed in the gap theory. And that became a majority view early on in the twentieth century as a gap theory. Is it between one and two there's a big gap? How long is that gap? More than a day. More than a day. <laughs> 13.4 billion years. <laughs> That's the gap. Because the earth is 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 destroyed. There's something that happens. There's Satan's cast down. There's some stuff has happened. There has to be there the argument was the world looks so old, so therefore it must be old. And because this is this is what they have. That is that is true. That is true. Um, some of the primitive Baptists said that the reason the world looks old, the reason it looks like evolution is true in the evidence, is because God's deceiving the non-elect. <laughs> so, um, Al Mohler says that the world looks so old because it's been under a curse. And so if you got like, you know, take a 16-year-old girl, you know, she lives clean and pure until she's 25. You know, she's, she's probably going to look decently at 25. Take the same 16-year-old girl, get her in drugs and alcohol and sex and parties and all that wild stuff. By the time she's 25, how's she going to look? A little haggard, just like you and I look, you know, from life. And you see this in preachers a lot. You ever notice how soft preachers' hands are? They're soft. (laughs) 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 So, if you run to a lawyer or a politician, somebody who works inside as an office job, ladies' hands sometimes can be pretty soft. 
you know. Remember the old dishpan hand stuff, you know. It just depends. I played basketball with a guy, and, man, the other day he grabbed my arm. I thought I was going to be cut. His hands were so, so rugged, so rugged. So um, so we know that this living life is, it can wear on you. So the, the world is, is ragged for those reasons. Uh, I think that's a reasonable explanation because because you had the the flood and the and the was the the hydraulic pressures on the earth and it's under judgment. Um, yeah, I think I think that I think that's a good a good a good a good one. Now, what you're going to run into when you when your kids go to college, they're going to run into professors and teachers who teach that teach evolution is true, right? High school. Yeah, and yeah, I guess all all of our kids have have learned evolution since they went to the public school. Um, in Oklahoma, they teach both. They teach they teach both as a theory. Yeah, it's not really. Yeah, they teach both sometimes. It it depend it depends from te- it really depends teacher to teacher. Because if you have a Christian teacher, she's going to say, "Now this is a theory," and if, and if they if they're allowed to say anything about creation, they will. They'll they'll give a disclaimer about it. Uh, one of our kids that right one 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 of our kids they had a teacher who uh, who said he was teaching evolution because um, they have to. I mean, it's it's in the, it's 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 part of the it's part of the the culture, the world we live in. The teacher said. You know, if your parents teach you something different, you know, go with what your parents say. You know, the guy, he, this person wasn't trying to set up. You got, you got to think your way through those, those ethical situations. Let's say your kid goes to school, and sometimes people, they make everything rest on six days. Got to be six. If it's not six days, it's wrong. I'll, I'll just tell you this. I've seen, I've seen this with a kid one time. He grew up, his dad was a big fan of Ken Ham. Ken Ham, got, he's got the ark down there. And he's got the create, he's got the museum. You guys ever been there? It's pretty cool. The ark is, it's cool for about five minutes. <laughs> After that, it's dull. But the, muse, the museum is cool. Yeah. I didn't. I, I thought I, I was expecting something different. But anyway, so Ken Ham, he says it's all about six days. It's all there. If you don't believe in six days, you're gonna be a heretic. Yada yada. It's all that. So called Christians. Now that's now that now that's that's a to say that is foolish, because up until the 21st century where we live. A lot of people, a lot of theological giants, they taught the day-age theory. That the days are ages. The founder of SBTS taught it, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the most prestigious seminary in the world. He taught it. Schofield taught it in varying degrees. So it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. And so here's what I say to you. If you run into somebody who says, I just can't... I just I reject the Bible because I can't get into six days, because the evidence looks like thirteen point four billion years. 
And some of the reasons they think that are, are kind of interesting, like light, the speed of light. This is, this is one thing they say. So the light we're seeing today, when did it, when did, when did it start? Way, 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 way back there, way back there, and that's to travel through time. And so sometimes from from people who are very mathematically oriented, very logical, they say, "I have to reject it because if these principles are true, because the speed of light is a true thing, speed of sound, these are all true things. So if I, so how can I reject the? I have to reject these truths. So that's a, so and some and this this turns people up." If you run into somebody like that, tell them to look up this guy right here, Hugh Ross. <laughs> Hugh Ross gives gives an alternative view. And I give this to you not because I agree with Hugh Ross, but because these people they have to have something to think through. They have to have something to. They have to have something to give them a pause. They have to have a speed bump. Because when they start, when you start rejecting things, you start. So when I became, when I became a Calvinist, I started rejecting everything my father, everything my, I thought, my dad didn't teach me this. How come my dad didn't teach me this wonderful, glorious, obviously biblical truth? How come, and then, so you start rejecting things. Wholesale rejection. And so, at one point, I, I said to myself, "Self, you you have got to slow down. You're getting carried away." I was just, I was just, I was, I wanted to become a Presbyterian. <laughs> and so, just you, you have to slow down. You have to have some speed bumps along the way. Sometimes the speed bumps are are a person that says, "Hey, what about this? Before you do that, think through this." Think this. Hugh Ross will get Hugh Ross will give a speed bump. And they'll come from it from a mathematical. He he's a professor, he's a, he's a professor at MIT, Christian guy, evangelical Christian, but he believes he's an old, he's old earth. Believes the earth is 13.4 billion years old. He'll give a speed bump. You have to think about your tactics with people. You gotta think about your tactics with people. Because sometimes with you can't just bring down the hammer and say, you're wrong, dummy. You you have to think. You have to be thoughtful, intentional about something. So I would recommend if you're into somebody like that, have them check out Hugh Ross's stuff. He's an astrophysicist. That's the word. Astrophysicist. Did he write a book or he's an, he's a Canadian astrophysicist, Christian apologist, old world's creationist, <laughs> PhD in astronomy. Now. All the stuff he just said, for me, that would, would, wouldn't carry a lot of weight with me at this point in my life because I believe the Bible. But a kid who's in college, what impresses them? Letters after names. <laughs> Where they teach at. So you can, you can, there's, there's a lot of, Christianity is so, is so glorious. There's so many resources out there. And with the internet, you can find so many helpful things. So many really helpful things to get people paused and think about it. So, all these verses about creation, they all attribute basically creation to God. 
That's the main theme of all of them. But let's look at one of these. It'll be we're only four minutes over time. So I'm sorry for this. But only one. Acts 17. Paul's at Athens talking to the, the greatest people in the world. The biggest brains. 17.24. Acts 17.24. He comes to them and he says, I see you guys have all these idols, but you missed. There's, there's one for the unknown God. Because in case they missed one, they have this one. This is the God we may not know. We don't want to leave any deity unhonored. And then he tells them that this God made everything. It's the Lord of heaven that does this. He doesn't live in temples built with hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. This is not like the gods you guys serve. Not like Zeus and Apollos and Diana. Not like those. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And they just heard Paul say, God made everything. We just have our being in him. And what's their response to that? It looks to me like silence, nothing. But when he says <clears throat> that he rose from the dead, how do they respond? They're mocked. They sneer. The resurrection from the dead. People, people can, you know, this every 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 group has a has a creation tradition, an origin tradition. Everybody has one. Every group has one. Scientists have one. Rising from the dead. This is the thing they trip over. This can't. This rising from the dead. Why 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 do they mock at it? <clears throat> why why don't why don't they mock <clears throat> Paul's creation account? Why don't they mock that? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. They've never seen it. There, there was nobody there. There's no way they can know. Why do they? Why do they mock a resurrection of the dead? Because they've stood and seen people die and die and die and die. They've never seen anyone rise from the dead. They've seen hundreds, thousands of people die. Never seen anyone raised from the dead. But who has the power to raise people from the dead? Jesus does. The resurrection is the most important is the most important thing in the New Testament, in my opinion. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead. That's why in Romans it says, If you have believed in thine heart that God hath what? Raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. So these are these are important things. They mo they mocked at the resurrection. All right, that's all I gotta say about that. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Father, bless these words to our hearts. And uh, whatever is ahead of us, Lord, I pray you would, you would use us. Help us to use some of this knowledge to help ourselves and help others. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. <coughs>
Thank you, Denise. Very kind of you.